we're going through a new series, and we're kicking it off tonight. Okay, If you were here last semester, you know that we focused mostly inside on the one another's. We went through a series called Alone Together, and in the series Alone Together, we looked at what we call the one another's of Scripture. Okay, mostly looking after our own, caring for how, uh, how we are to treat one another. We are to serve, love, uh, rebuke, pray, confess sin to, be at peace with, forgive. Those are some of the ones we covered. This semester, you could almost think of it as one long series. We continue to look in at ourselves and take care of our own lives, but we also do this. We also begin to look out with the gospel. If I was to wrap this semester up in one word, it would be this, gospel. We are really going to study the gospel and how the gospel impacts our lives and how it ought to impact other people's lives. I don't know about you, but uh, from an early age, I really enjoyed sports. I was never very good at them, but it didn't stop me from enjoying them. Okay, and probably the one I still enjoy most to this day is basketball. But I wasn't, and I'm still not very good at it. But I really like it. It didn't stop me from trying. And in basketball, I don't know about you if you've ever played, obviously, you know, there's offense and defense, right? Well, I liked playing defense. I wasn't that good of a shot. I would pass the ball up a lot, but I loved getting in people's face and playing defense. You know what I'm talking about? Just really not bothering people maliciously but just uh, trying to deny ball and play defense. And I found out that even though I'm not very good at basketball, at least I could get by playing defense. But as I went on and as I continued to play, people realized I couldn't play offense. (laughs) You can imagine what happened. They passed the ball out on the perimeter and I'm wide open and uh, they know they can play off of me, right? So if you ever watched a basketball game, you know that you have to be able to play both ways a little bit. Even in football, I liked playing defense more than offense. Guess what? When I learned, when I learned that in the Christian life, you can go on offense, that was a big deal for me. That changed my view of the Christian life. See, I was always playing defense, and I was pretty good at defense. Sitting back, learning good apologetics, defending my faith. Very important to learn how to play defense, right? To stay away from sin, to remove yourself from sin. I got pretty good at that. Uh, I could have said I was pretty moral. But when I learned, look, you got to play offense. Boy, that was pretty eye-opening for me. And can I tell you what else it was? It was enlivening for me. So when I get to talk about the gospel, when I get to go, if you will, this picture in your mind of going on the offense, that fires me up. I want to do, how'd you do that, Andrew? That, uh, the winner's dance? I won't even try and imitate it. All I can do is this one, the loser's dance. <laughs> I love Andrew because he's, uh, uh, he's got good self-awareness, but he doesn't, uh, he's not afraid to make fun of himself or have you laugh at him. I appreciate that about him. He's funny. Uh, so we're going to talk about this semester, not just defense, not just how to take care of the home place, which is important. We need to do that, but how to go on the offense. Okay. The series is called Ambassadors. Ambassadors, and it's based on a text in 2 Corinthians 5.20. It talks about how we are God's ambassadors, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So this semester, tonight, we start on our series called Ambassadors. I don't know if you remember clear back to August, but the first text we went over, uh, I believe it's in Matthew 22, was the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment. Remember the Pharisee or the lawyer asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? He talks about loving God and loving your neighbor. He links those two together. Tonight, we don't talk about the greatest commandment. We talk about the greatest commission. The greatest commission. Okay, so open with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 28. 
Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The Bible is divided into New and Old Testament. Old Testament takes up uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters. The first book in the New Testament is called Matthew. The last chapter in Matthew is chapter 28. I want you to go there. Follow me there. And we'll start in verse 16. Okay, verse 16. It says this. Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Let's stop there for now. It's going to be important for you to understand what mountain, what disciples, what Jesus, those kinds of things. So just hang on for me with a minute while I build some foundation around chapter 28. Okay, chapter 28 uh, starts with Mary and Mary going to the tomb of Jesus. And Mary and Mary uh, are going and they're mourning and they want to go to the tomb of Jesus. And what they're expecting when they get there is to find what? You know, a tomb with a stone rolled against it, and Jesus dead inside. But what happens? An angel greets him there instead. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you here looking for Jesus when he's alive and well? And the angel tells him to go to Galilee and meet Jesus there. And on their way back, who else do they run into but the risen Lord? And look at verse 8, what their response is. Uh, They left the tomb quickly with fear, great joy, ran to report this to his disciples, and behold, Jesus. Jesus met and greeted them. They came up, took hold of his feet, and what did they do? What else can you do? They worshipped him. Try and put yourself, just for an instant, in their shoes, can you? You're going, you are absolutely heartbroken, distraught. You go to the tomb, it's rolled away, and this angel says, there was an earthquake, Jesus is not here anymore, the stones are rolled away, go tell the disciples, meet him in Galilee. You get there, maybe you're not sure totally whether to believe it or not, Jesus greets you. Now you believe it, and you fall at his feet in worship. As we'll see in a minute, that's the only reasonable thing to do when you see and know and understand who Jesus is. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to the brethren, or to the brothers, to leave for Galilee, and uh, they will see me. So Jesus says, Go talk to the eleven disciples. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. Okay, and then in 11 through 15, you'll see the plot to, uh, that the soldiers that the government went under to try and hide this, uh, the miracle of the resurrection, okay, to try and do away with some of the. A word that was already getting out about Jesus' resurrection. That takes us to verse 16. So the 11 disciples did go to Galilee, just like Jesus told them, just like Mary Mary told them. And uh, they went to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Let me just fill in some gaps. Jesus rises from the dead. We just talked about how he saw Mary. Then he appeared to the disciples at least twice. And Thomas, you remember who we call poor doubting Thomas, placed his hands and his fingers and in his side. So he appeared to them and then he went would have taken him about a week to get down to Galilee. And then he greets uh, the disciples where they're fishing in Galilee, waiting for him. Peter throws off his tunic, swims to him. You remember that. And then this, Jesus meets them on the mountain. Okay, The mountain where he disclosed to him, said, I want you to be there. They're there. I would have taken Jesus about a week to get back to Jerusalem after this, where he ascends from the uh, Mount of Olives. And so... This happened somewhere between day 20 and 35 of Jesus' resurrected life. Okay, so I just want to give you a little chronology, a little background to where we are. We're in Galilee. Jesus is there. And it's important to understand probably not just the 11 disciples are there. 
Okay, most of Jesus' disciples were in north, northern Israel in Galilee. So it makes sense that Jesus would have wanted to meet uh, on a mountain outside Galilee. And probably not just the 11, but probably, if you look at 1 Corinthians uh, it's 15.6, Jesus talks about there's 500 who were gathered and saw the resurrection, uh, the resurrected Jesus Christ and heard him speak. Okay? So that's where we are. They're on the mountain Galilee. Most of Jesus' followers are there. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus was going to give this great commission, he would want to be in a place and he would want to be at a time where most of his followers could hear them. But I want you to notice something that we could easily skip by in verse 16 if we're not careful. The disciples were available. Don't underestimate, don't overlook that. Jesus asked them to be somewhere, and quite simply, they were. And for some of us, this tends to be one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Simply obeying Jesus and simply making ourselves available. They were where Jesus told them to be. There wasn't many there, I mean 500, maybe 511. But if you look at Jesus' three and a half year ministry, you think about the number of people that could have been following him. 500 is a relatively small amount, right? Uh, if there's any VIPs, if there's any super people there, Matthew doesn't bother mentioning them. These are 500 simple people, simple servants of Christ. But I want you to not miss that they were available. They were obedient. They wanted to know and follow Jesus. And so when he said go, they went and they made themselves available. And if they didn't, they would have missed the greatest commission or the great commission. Verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Again, what else can they do? What else is a reasonable response but to fall at Jesus' feet? The same response we saw in verse 9 with Mary and Mary, wasn't it? They followed His feet and worshipped Him. It's only, again, it's the only correct response really that we can have to Jesus. When we see Him, when we know Him, when we begin to understand Him, what else can we do but fall at His feet? Luke 5, 8, really the whole Bible, but we'll just look at a few. Luke 5, 8, Peter realizes his sinfulness. What's he do? He falls at Jesus' feet and says, Away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Isaiah 6, we find out that's Jesus in the temple. The seraphim, the angels crowd, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah do? Some utterly undone. He's broken. He recognizes his own sinfulness. Luke 19.40 Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And what happens? The disciples, the people praise Him. They worship Him. The Pharisees tell Him, hey, tell your disciples to knock it off. Do you realize what they're doing? They're worshiping you. Do you know what it means if you receive worship? That you're making yourself out to be God. So the Pharisees say, tell them to knock it off. Remember what Jesus says? This is one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. Remember what He says? I tell you, if these are silent, what? The rocks will cry out. Jesus will be worshipped. It's reasonable. It's acceptable. It makes sense that Jesus would be worshipped. And so that's what we see in chapters, or verse 17. But then we have this amazing statement, don't we? In sheer honesty, Matthew records, some doubted. <laughs> some doubted. You've got to appreciate Matthew's honesty. You appreciate the Christian's honesty. Some doubted. Apparently, seeing isn't always believing. Luke 24, 41 says this, When he, that's Jesus, appeared to the eleven and some others and ate with them, they could not believe. Why? Because of their joy and amazement. Again, try to put yourself in their shoes. 
Their hearts are broken. They feel like their world is wrecked. Jesus is in the grave. And he rises again. And you can imagine, just like at a great point in your life where you could hardly believe it, and you didn't want to know until you absolutely know because you realized if it wasn't true, it would have crushed you. Some doubted. Some of these disciples doubted. Probably not the 11. Probably some of the 500 that were there. The 11 had been with him a few times now. They'd seen him, known him, ate with him. But some of the disciples doubted. You could understand this at some level, can't you? You could understand how relieved they would have been. I appreciate how D.A. Carson, in his honesty, puts this. It says, Jesus' resurrection did not instantly transform men of little faith and faltering understanding into spiritual giants. These men didn't go to little faith, faltering understanding overnight to some spiritual giants. Remember, these are the men that God, that Jesus would use to turn the world upside down for him and for his gospel. But it didn't happen overnight. Some doubted. And so, brothers and sisters, so it is with some of us, isn't it? I always appreciate when I encounter James 1.22, have mercy on those who doubt. There are times, there are seasons where we doubt. I hear people say often to me, if I could only just see if God would give me some tangible miracle. Listen, the disciples, the 500, the 11, they were there and yet some doubted. At some level, I believe this is our sin nature. We doubt and some doubted. This malady, this timidness, this fear, this doubt would have been at some level cured at Pentecost when the disciples uh, received power through the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 1.7 where it says, God has not given us a spirit of timidness or a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of discipline. Okay? These disciples would go from doubt and from fear and from timidness to power and love and discipline. And that's our example. That's how we ought to be too, friends. Sometimes we doubt. We must encounter Christ. We must go back to Scripture, remind ourselves of these truths, must remind ourselves of the truths of Christ's resurrection, must be strengthened with the power of His might. We must remind ourselves that we have a spirit of power and love and discipline. Now, before we go to verse 18, I want you to think about, have you ever been given a role? Have you ever been given a responsibility without the authority to carry it out? This might seem like an extreme example, but let's say uh, I turn to one of you here tonight and I say, I want you to get in touch with uh, President Obama tomorrow and let him know that I want him to insert this in the meeting minutes next, uh, next week when they go over to the staff meeting at the White House. And if you didn't carry it out, I'd be ticked off. I've given you some role, some responsibility, but you don't have the authority to carry it out, right? Well, Jesus knew and understand that. And so he knew, knowing that He was about to give him a great responsibility. Knowing that some doubted, I want you to see what he says in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. You know what all means in the original language in the Greek? All. All authority. Jesus was given all authority. Okay, The implications of this are beyond description. We can't cover this tonight at least not exhaustively, but I do want to help you with this. So if you'll follow me to Colossians. Okay, the book of Colossians is after the four Gospels. And it goes Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Colossians chapter 1, 
And I'm going to read with you verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. This is speaking about Christ. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Stop there. Who created authority? Who created authorities? Jesus did. You think He has all authority? You bet He does. He created the authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You think Jesus has all authority? You bet He does. In heaven, on earth, to say it another way, anywhere in the universe. Who has authority? Jesus. Who rules? Jesus. All authority has been given to Him. Who reigns? Jesus does. Is there any question about who's in charge? Let there not be. All authority is Jesus's in heaven and on earth. So in case we're tempted to see Him post-resurrection, we just saw Him in His humility In His humiliation on the cross, Jesus reminds us He has all authority. The the disciples, the role, the responsibility they were about to get, it wasn't their authority they were having. It was not an intrinsic authority, you might say. It was the alien authority. The authority they had came not from themselves, but from Jesus. Okay, So go back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 28. Jesus has just told them, post-resurrection, I have all authority. He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples is a main verb here. In fact, it's the only verb in this sentence. What you need to recognize about the Great Commission is this. Make disciples. That's the command. That's the commission. Make disciples. Disciples, it's the central focus of the Great Commissions. And friends, it's the central focus of the church. And it's the central focus, I hope and I pray, of cross life. Make disciples. Make disciples who make disciples. The words go, baptize, and teach, these are all participles describing how we make disciples. Okay? Let me define disciple for you. If we want to be disciples, if we want to make disciples, we should know and understand who or what a disciple is, shouldn't we? A disciple is this. Just think of it this way. As a learner and a follower. A learner and a follower. We'll deal with learner in a second. But what is a follower? A follower of who? Well, who else but Jesus Christ? Uh, Before they can be a disciple, they have to be converted, don't they? Before we could become a disciple, we had to be converted. In fact, Luke helps us here when he talks about the Great Commission on a different occasion with the eleven. He says this, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scripture and how it testified about Him that He was going to suffer, rise again, and that this, get this, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. How do you make disciples? If disciples are learners and followers, how do you make them? You declare that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. You proclaim that 
People can have their sins forgiven if they repent and if they turn to Christ. Disciples are first of all followers. Okay? They were made followers and learners. And so shall we be followers and learners. So Jesus says, because I have all authority, in order to make disciples, you must, here's the first one, go. Go. Well, go where? Disciples aren't just going to fall into your lap, are you? You've been around long enough to recognize that. Making them will take a concerted effort and a steady reliance on God, who is the one who ultimately makes disciples. And on Jesus' example as the great disciple maker. Okay? Now, what should we do with this idea of going? It says, go. Go and make disciples. If you're like most, your mind goes immediately to overseas missions. We need to go. We need to get out. We need to go. Uh, but not all should go overseas. Though this is not currently the problem I see in Cross Life or in the church at large, I want more to go. I hope missionaries are raised up, cross-cultural missionaries are raised up from this group to go to all nations. It's my prayer and my hope. But not all should go. Besides the fact, we know that some have to go because if it's going to happen at all nations, some are going to have to go to those nations. But the phrase could fairly be translated as you go or while you're going. While you're going. Well, while you're going where? Anywhere. Everywhere. In other words, the commission won't be carried out unless you go somewhere. Do something. The apostles stayed in their own country for 15 years before Paul started taking them on missionary journeys. Okay, so obviously this isn't just go like leave tomorrow on some short-term mission trip, but it's an as-you-go kind of idea. Okay, it means not that you necessarily need to cross the sea, but for those in neighborhoods, it might mean that you need to go across the street. For those of you in dorms, it might mean that you need to go across the hall. For those of you in the job force, it might mean that you need to go across the cubicle or go across the counter or go across the workplace. You need to go somewhere. Some of you someday, mothers and fathers, maybe it might mean that you need to go across the room to your children to make disciples. You might be able to go across the room tonight and make a disciple. I hope you're aware that not everyone here knows Jesus. Some people here potentially think they know Jesus and don't. Some people here are, readily, uh, are ready to admit they don't know Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 14, we find out that one of the roles of the church, unbelievers come into the church and see the church and go, wow, something's different here. They hear and sit under the preaching of the gospel and they get converted. So maybe you need to go across the room and make a disciple. But go somewhere. The point is you take the initiative. You go. This is very important for us to understand. In other words, the commission isn't going to be carried out unless you go. Go somewhere. Do something. As you're going this semester on campus, remember, you are a full-time disciple maker. By the way, guess how you got the gospel. Someone went to you. There's a chance you came to them. There's some in this room that I can think of right now who came to me. But most of the time, we go. Chances are someone went to you. A second word here is baptizing. Why is this so important? A baptizing has been replaced, unfortunately, as the public profession of the faith by walking the aisle or by raising your hand or by making eye contact with a speaker somehow as the public profession of the faith. But baptism is always the ordinance that God has handed down as a public profession of your faith. 
There are massive, I, I'm sure you realize this, there's massive amounts of confusion about baptism in the church today. What the role of baptism is. Does it save? Does it not save? Is it necessary? Is it unnecessary? Let me try and help you with a short definition of baptism. You can write this down if you want, or you can commit this to memory. Okay, Baptism is a sign, it's a visible sign of an inward spiritual decision. Let me say it this way. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual decision. Okay? Baptism is a sign, it's a symbol, it's an outward profession of your faith that you're identifying with who? With Jesus. And with who else? Who else? His bride. When you're baptized, you're identifying not just with Jesus, but with the bride, His church. Baptism, friends, is important, but it does not save. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual decision. Notice that he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I noticed as I was reading through this and studying this, that it doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the triune God of the universe. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three in one, the one in three, the God of the universe that we are to be baptized into His name. Verse 20 tells us the third thing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching all. I want you to notice for a second the comprehensiveness of this command. Okay? He says, all authority, all the nations, all that I've commanded you, and all the days. Some of your versions might say always. Lo, I'm with you always. All the days. This is comprehensive. Jesus is making no bones about it. All authority. All the nations, all that I've commanded you, I'm with you all the time, all the days. Remarkably, get this, think about this for a second. Remarkably, Jesus doesn't foresee a time in the future where his words, where his commands, where his scripture won't be necessary for making disciples. Say it again. Jesus doesn't foresee a time, sometime in the future, sometime in 2015, where making disciples won't include teaching them His Word, where His Word will somehow be irrelevant or unnecessary for making disciples. Jesus is very clear that if you want to make disciples, what do you do? You teach them what He said. You teach them Scripture. Okay, That's where the learner comes in. Remember we said being a disciple means being a learner and a follower. So if you want to make disciples, if you want to be a disciple, learn Jesus' words well. Well enough to teach them to others. Paul did this, didn't he? He taught the whole counsel of God. I'll read to you Acts twenty twenty seven. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Colossians one twenty eight. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching who? Everyone. With all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We are to teach them the whole counsel of God. It's also worth noting that it's not content, uh, you're not to be contented, I'm not to be content with merely learning the Word of God so you can duplicate it, so you can explain it or regurgitate it. It's meant to be learned why. The verse says so you can obey it. Teaching them all that I've commanded you. They may obey it. That's the idea that we want to obey God's commands, that we want to be obedient. I think at this point, as I go along through the Great Commission, we've been talking about what it is. I want to spend just a brief bit of time on what the Great Commission isn't. Okay, Because if I think about Christianity today, I realize there's a great amount of confusion about what the Great Commission both is, but probably equally as much about what the Great Commission isn't. Okay, 
So one, the Great Commission is not merely about making converts. The Great Commission can, cannot mean less than evangelism, but it must mean more than evangelism. If we're going to make disciples, we talked about earlier, they have to be converts. They have to be regenerate. They have to be repentant. It cannot mean less than evangelism, but listen, it doesn't stop at evangelism either. The Great Commission, I like how Bill Hull in the disciple-making pastor, he says this, the Great Commission has been worshipped, but not obeyed. The church, has tried to get the, world of, uh, the church has tried to get world evangelization without disciple-making. We must not merely make converts, but make disciples. One, the, church, or the Great Commission is not merely making converts. Two, the Great Commission is not mercy work or social justice merely. When you say missions, when I say missions, what most of the time do people think of? Sex trafficking, digging wells, building houses. Now listen, don't hear me say those things aren't important. But don't mistake those for the Great Commission. You're not making disciples if you're not preaching the gospel. It's not a mission if the goal isn't to make disciples. Okay, so two, the Great Commission is not merely mercy work or social justice. Call them mercy trips, but don't call them missions. Three, the Great Commission is not getting as little information to as many people as possible. I want you to understand something tonight. It might sound very simple, but I say this because I see it far too much. You cannot share the gospel if you don't know the gospel. You cannot share the gospel if you don't know the gospel. The gospel is not merely about communicating as little information to as many people as possible. And that's what's happening today by well-meaning groups, by well-meaning places, by well-meaning organizations. There's a little amount of truth to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Uh, the the Great Commission is not merely about getting information out. It's about making disciples. Paul didn't do this, by the way. He planted churches. That was his model in missions. He was a church planner. Okay. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. It's easy to sit back. It's easy to sit in our chairs in a warm building on a Thursday night or in our armchairs at home and pick apart tactics, to pick apart methods, to, to pick apart great commission ideas isn't it but at some level christians we must go we must do we must carry out the great commission in our own lives it's not an option for any true christian to sit in his armchair and criticize others about how they're trying to do the great commission it's important listen it's important that you understand what the great commission is not but if you're not doing something don't sit in your armchair and criticize others for trying to do something Jesus says in John 20, 21, As the Father sent me, so I also send you. The command, the commission here, it's not optional, friends. I look forward with great anticipation of this semester because it pushes me into areas and, and scenarios and people that I'm not comfortable in, not comfortable with. I like this at some level and I hate it at another level, if I was to be perfectly honest with you. But this command, this commission, it's not optional. Disciples make disciples. If you're a disciple, you make disciples. I want to ask, what is the central role of the church today? What is your role today? What should you have on your mind daily as a believer? Charles Spurgeon helped me with this by putting it very simply. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
if we're a Christian, we must make disciples. Not merely his duty, but his privilege. Let me ask you a question, and feel free to be frank, although you don't have to raise your hand or stand up. Does this frighten you? Yeah, it does a little bit. It frightens me. Does this scare you? I see you shaking your head yes. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, If you and I were to be honest, most of the time the idea of making disciples, it's often intimidating. And if I were to be honest, it's rarely, if ever, easy. And dare we say it might even be frightening or scary. But that's why, look at the rest of this verse with me. That's why Jesus says, I am with you. When? Always. Even to the end of the age. These are comforting words. There's many comforting words in the Bible, but as I thought about comforting words, these are perhaps some of the most. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Until Jesus comes back, He is with us in spirit, in believers. Matthew opens his gospel with this idea that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He closes it with this idea. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is always with us. He is God with us. It's a fitting culmination, isn't it, to the gospel of Matthew and to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. His disciples go and make disciples. It's simple yet profound. I read to you one last quote that shook me up a little bit this week and helped me. It says this, Fellowship, teaching, and praise are not the mission of the church, but are rather the preparation of of the church to fulfill its mission in winning the lost. John MacArthur says, just as in athletics, just as in athletics, training should never be confused or substituted with actually competing in the game, which is the reason for all training. I'll read that last part to you again. Just as in athletics, training should never be confused with or substituted for actually competing in the game, which is the reason for all training. You're not here just tonight just to be trained, merely to be trained. You're to be trained. You're here tonight to train, to exercise, to compete, to go, to make disciples. This is the mission of the church. And this is our charge. And I pray that this semester you'd be one to accept it. That you would accept gladly this call to make disciples. But you cannot make disciples for Jesus if you do not know Jesus' gospel. And so seven days from tonight, we'll be here again starting talking about what Jesus' gospel is not. And the following two weeks will be on what Jesus' gospel is. We cannot make disciples for Jesus if we do not know His gospel. And so we'll spend at least the next four weeks, three and then four, talking about assurance on what the gospel is and how we make disciples by knowing it. Listen, it's my prayer, it's our prayer as Cross Life staff, but that by the end of the semester, you would cut us and we would bleed this great commission that we would bleed the gospel of grace for the great commission for the glory of God. That when you speak, you speak language that makes disciples. That when you cut you, you bleed. This ministry bleeds. Make disciples. With urgency, honesty, and joy, you go and you preach the gospel. You make disciples. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you, and I implore you tonight, be reconciled to God. Go, friends. Go this semester. Come with and make disciples. Let me pray.
God, to you be the glory. Great things you have done. You've loved the world so much that you gave us your son. Your son yielded his life in atonement for sin and he opened the life gate that all may go in. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the charge of the great commission. Thank you for the goosebumps it gives us and for the reassurance that you say, lo, I am with you always at all times, even to the end of the age. God, go with us. Go before us this semester. Empower us to preach the gospel always. Help us to go across the hall, to go across the neighborhood, to go across the street and begin to make disciples. God, I pray that this would be true of us. Use us. God, use us in this valley. Use us at Cross Life. Use us at MSU. Use us in Livingston, even to the ends of the earth. God, raise up disciples. Get glory for yourself, God, through this group. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.